So as I mentioned earlier, we're, we've been working through a series of talks that we've framed as deepening insight. And so just a little bit of a recap from last week before we go further. We've been looking particularly at the three universal characteristics of all experience, which are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. And with this particular series, we've been focusing mostly on the characteristic of not-self, which for most people is the one that's the most challenging to really get a handle on. And we've been using a particular set of teachings about the five clinging aggregates as a lens to help us see where and how we do get caught in clinging to experience, identifying with it, taking it personally. And to the extent that we do that, to that same extent, we tend to suffer. So the more clearly we can see how that clinging and identifying and taking personally happens, the more easy it is to help that release. And then the benefit is that we experience more ease, more peace, more freedom. So when I was here two weeks ago, we were working through this sequence of the five clinging aggregates. And I often like to just test people to see how much they were taking in. So let's see if you can remember what these five clinging aggregates are. People who are smiling the most get the first shot. Brilliant. Material form, including the body. Very good. That's the first one. Gold, gold star for you. But don't take it personally. <laughs> okay, what's the second one? Kim? Feeling tone, yes. Very good. And then for people who were here two weeks ago, can you remember the third one? Perception, thank you, and mental formations, the fourth one, and then the fifth one is consciousness. Great. So, last time we were focusing on the clinging aggregates of perception and volitional mental formations, and seeing how quickly these, and how powerfully they come together to create a sense of me. And we did that group exercise at the end to experience very directly how these perceptions and formations combine to create all kinds of narratives. Narratives about our experience, about other people, about ourselves. And in fact, they almost always refer back to a me at the center of that whole constructing, fabricating process. So for those who weren't here last time or maybe haven't listened to the recording yet, just very quickly, perception or sanya is the mind's capacity to recognize and name what's being experienced. So with every sense experience, every sight, sound, smell, physical sensation and mental activity, is that five or six? Sight, sound, smell, taste, physical sensation, mental activity. Perception also arises. 
So for example, I'm guessing you're perceiving a human being sitting here. You're perceiving words from the stream of sounds coming from my mouth. We're perceiving that we're sitting in a room with other people. We might be perceiving the quality of the light in the moment or the temperature and so on. So perception is happening all the time. And on one level, it's so simple and obvious, we just don't even notice it most of the time, that we're constantly generating a stream of perceptions out of the raw data of color and texture and sound and form and so on. And we take that perception and we categorize and label objects, people, ideas. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. In fact, if we didn't have that capacity, we would have a very hard time even functioning in the world. The problem is the clinging to that, the tendency to take those perceptions being static, solid, permanent reality or ultimate truth. Because once we've labeled or fixed something, we it becomes just that thing. It's just a bell, it's just a Buddha shape, it's just a cup of tea. So we label it, we recognize it, and then we usually go into whether we like it or don't like it or are indifferent to it. And often, as we saw last time, the mind also immediately starts to create stories about it. So I think everyone who was here two weeks ago had that experience, right, of just looking at a pair of shoes and then creating this whole world, <laughs> which is actually the fourth of these sankara, of these formations known as sankara, volitional mental formations sometimes also known as fabrications or constructions. So it's the mind's tendency to make associations, to construct narratives, to fabricate whole worlds out of these basic perceptions. And then again, to cling to them, to inhabit them as if they were fixed, absolute reality, instead of something that the mind has actually constructed for itself. So the key point, and again, because these um, categories are not always so clear-cut, and the distinction between perceptions and formations is pretty fluid, the point of this system is not to try and exactly categorize when a perception turns into a formation. It's to see the clinging to or identifying with these categories. So I'm sure you've seen if nothing else in the exercise we did last week, but also in your own daily life, just how quickly the mind moves from simple perception to constructing these formations of all kinds. And often those formations tend to be kind of self-reinforcing. They're built on our patterns and they become habits. And as you know, our brains, because of neuronal plasticity, can be sculpted. But often we tend to find ourselves going over the same patterns, the same formations, strengthening them. So we want to see which of these formations are helpful and beneficial and which ones aren't so that we can help them release.
Often, though, because this is happening so fast, it's not always possible to catch that process in the moment. And so this is my, uh, it's a bit of an old joke now, but I talk a lot about post-mortem mindfulness. So usually mindfulness is in the moment, but for many of us, if we happen to have got caught in one of these formations, these old narratives or stories, we might need to go back after the fact and revisit and sort of dissect what the hell happened. How did I end up in that reactivity? And so we can do this kind of inquiry to see what was that trigger thought or situation or belief that kind of cascaded into that groove which then exploded into whatever happened for us. Because the speed of the thinking often takes us unawares. So one challenge with working with formations is that they happen so quickly. The other is that without some kind of Dharma understanding, we do tend to take all of this very personally, to believe it to be true, real, and who I am. And I think many of you have explored this before with me, but just how much the English language in its very structure tends to reinforce that. It always refers back to an I, a me, at the center of it all. And we see that very clearly in relation to emotions, for example. So how often we say things like, I am angry, I'm so depressed. I'm so bored, or I'm so happy, and so on. And again, that's not necessarily a problem, but if we make it solid, it's like we collapse our whole experience into I am angry, rather than just knowing, okay, whoop, anger is arising. Anger feels like this. Tightness in the jaw, heat in the face, Buzzing thoughts in the mind. Wave of self-righteousness. Tightness. Moment of self-compassion. A little bit of breathing space. So I don't know if you hear when I say, I am angry, as opposed to, oh, anger is like this. How does it affect you, even on a bodily level? Does it feel different? So for me, that's been a really powerful trick in a way when I catch myself saying I am, and it often is with that kind of contracted, tight kind of sense to it, that in itself becomes a feedback mindfulness bell. Okay, there's some identification happening here. How can I change that inner language? So the key is also to keep remembering, seeing clearly with wisdom, that thoughts are just thoughts. And they only have exactly as much power as we give to them. And it's very easy to forget that. But even just neurobiologically, what is a thought? It's just some firing of neurons in the brain in and of itself, it doesn't have a whole lot of power. But 
even having said that, I'm guessing you've had the experience. I certainly have of just, you know, innocently going about my day, feeling quite happy, everything's fine. And then some random thought comes in, seemingly out of nowhere, and <laughs> the whole thing just... <laughs> and sometimes that thought seems to last for hours. The whole day just shifts because of one firing of neurons in the brain. So it can be really helpful, even on an intellectual level, to remember it is just a thought. And as support for that, the wisdom piece, the insight piece, is we can bring in our three friends, Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, as allies to remind us of that wisdom. So Anicca... Everything is impermanent. It's constantly changing. Dukkha, everything is unsatisfactory or imperfect. And anatta, there is no fixed solid entity in here that I can call myself. That's at the center of it all. It's impersonal. And the more deeply we can understand these three characteristics, the more powerfully they support ease and happiness and peace and freedom. The opposite is also true. The more we don't see those things, the more we resist impermanence and so on, the more we tend to suffer. So as mindfulness gets stronger and we are better able to pay attention to our thoughts and emotions, we start to recognize how often we solidify around the sense of I am. So in my own practice, there was a phase where I started really paying attention to these I am thoughts. And, you know, some proportion of them were just benign, like I am wearing my favorite color or I'm going to meet a friend for coffee. That's fine. But I started to notice a whole category of I am thoughts that did have more of that sense of collapsing, contracting, solidifying. And I was surprised when I paid attention to them how many of them actually were not true. At best, they were only partially true or temporarily true. So a relatively innocuous example. One time I heard myself saying, I'm always late. And then I thought, really? Actually, last week I was a bit early. (laughs) Right now I'm a bit late. But the mind takes that one experience. I'm always late. I'm a person who's always late. And it solidifies around that. I don't know why in that particular example. But as I said, that's a fairly innocuous one. But we often do that with other aspects of experience. I'm always anxious. I never experience any relief. I'm in constant misery. Often they're quite negative things that we tell ourselves. And so a second aspect of that inner language to look out for is the use of words like always or never. I'm always late. I'm never happy. In psychological terms, those are known as absolutist thinking. This is an unhealthy thinking style that's actually been linked to um, anxiety and depression. 
And in Buddhist terms, it's an unhealthy thinking style because it reinforces the delusion of permanence. So if you do happen to notice these kind of words coming up in the mind, you might just challenge them. Notice the language, play with it, and see if you can come up with words that are actually more true. So rather than saying, I'm a highly anxious person, you might just reframe it. I do have a tendency to feel anxiety under certain circumstances. Do you hear the difference? Again, you know, you might notice how it feels in the body when you make that sort of absolute eternalizing statement and when you say something that's a little more nuanced and fluid and open to the possibility of change. And even just that small change in the inner language can open up a little more space and release the grip of that, at least a little And sometimes when I've worked with students, and perhaps particularly around things like anxiety or depression, sometimes people have tried to convince me, well, that might be true for other people, but my anxiety is absolutely permanent. It's always been there. It's totally constant, and it will never go away. (laughs) And so I sometimes say, okay... For example, one time there was a woman who said to me, my last 24 hours have been sheer, unremitting hell. And I said, okay, all 24 hours? Yes, absolutely. Wow, that's a really long time. So I asked her, you know, if you think back over the last 24 hours, was there any point of the day where it wasn't sheer unremitting hell, but, you know, just slightly less than that. And she said, oh, well, actually, the cup of tea that I had after breakfast was pretty nice. Mm-hmm. I said, oh. She said, yeah, I took it out onto the back porch and I sat down and all these little birds were playing. That was fun. And there were some bird seeds, so I started feeding the birds. And they were eating out of my hand. That was amazing. And then I realized that the steam was coming off my cup of tea and there was a bit of a rainbow in it. And she just started describing this whole wonderful sequence of experiences that she'd had. But her mind had completely censored them into the last 24 hours with sheer, unremitting hell. And that's possibly a more extreme example, but we could probably all think of times in our lives when we have done that to ourselves. So to see when we get locked into that solidifying and permanentifying, if that's a word, if it isn't, it should be, that tendency to make things permanent, sometimes I invite people to think of their mind states on on a scale of zero to ten in terms of intensity. So if we're talking about anxiety, for example, zero would be completely calm and at ease. Ten would be kind of in the terrain of a panic attack. And so sometimes if people say, I'm always anxious, I'll invite them to spend 24 hours noticing, are you at a constant nine the entire time? And usually they can notice, even in the course of speaking to someone over 10 minutes, 
it might go up to a six and then settle down to a four and then four and a half and then moment of nine and then back to... So when you really start noticing that, it's very useful because not only do people tend to censor out the non-anxious times, but when they use that scale, they can see, wow, right now it's down to a two. And they can start to notice how the body feels when the anxiety is less. Most of the time they don't even notice that because they're so attuned to the higher levels of anxiety. So we can do that with any kind of afflictive emotions, not not only anxiety. So seeing the impermanence of afflictive states, really tuning in is one powerful way to help them feel less permanent and solid. And then the second of these three characteristics, dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, the truth of imperfection, can also be a very powerful ally, helping us to decrease identification. Even though in one sense this might sound like bad news, the truth that everything is impermanent, uh, sorry, imperfect and unsatisfactory. Because I think most of us do tend to put a lot of energy into trying to make things right, trying to get it right, trying to get it the way we want it to be, trying to make other people behave the way we want them to be. It's a futile task because of dukkha. It is never, ever going to be perfect. And yet we put so much time and energy. If I just did this, if I could only do that, if there were only more like that, then I'd be okay. So really letting in the truth of unsatisfactoriness. It doesn't mean that we just go, oh, well, it's all dukkha, forget about it. It's a hopeless, I'll just give up. But we understand that at times, in spite of our best efforts, we're not always going to get exactly what we want. And that too can help release the grip of I've got to, I have to, I need to, I should, they didn't, etc., etc. And then the last one, the truth of anatta, of not-self. Again, this is one that can be understood on deeper and deeper levels. And we've been exploring this um, over these last four or five talks, for most people to really land in this as an experiential understanding, it takes the experience of being on retreat when the mind is more still and calm and steady. But even having a more intellectual understanding of it can be helpful. So we get to see how often we're actually constructing our own distress by taking things personally and that tendency again to identify particularly with negative mind states so as I was saying earlier to really as a practice you might experiment in the next week or two to notice those I am thoughts especially when they carry that sort of charge or that tightening or contraction or I am And particularly at times when we get into conflict with other people. For me, that's often a place where that identification becomes very clear. 
if someone challenges some kind of self-view, and we find ourselves, but I am, you know, I'm doing this because that's often what my body does. It becomes more solid and more tense and more tight. So we might tell ourselves, yes, I am a highly anxious person, rather than under certain circumstances, I do have a tendency to feel anxiety. So just to notice where and how we create those statements and start to inhabit them as if they were ultimately true and eternally true, solidly true. Because the more we can see them and release ourselves from the grip of them, to that extent, ease and peace and freedom become possible. So I think that's probably plenty for now. I'd like to just finish there. Thank you for your attention. And then just turn over to you for any reflections or questions. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.